0: So, John the Baptist was uh, very famous in his day, more so than Jesus. Not just in the Bible, but he's written about in other ancient sources as well. Uh, There's a writer named Josephus, Jewish historian who says almost nothing about Jesus at all, but he talks about John the Baptist. He says that John was called the Baptist. He was a good man, and he commanded the Jews to exercise virtue and piety towards God and to come and be baptized. And we know from the Gospel of Luke that John was actually the cousin of Jesus. He was the older cousin. And when they first met in the womb, when they met in the womb, it says that uh, John leapt. The word, the verb is he leapt. Imagine a child in the womb leaping. But when he first met Jesus in the womb, he was so excited that he leapt, apparently. I don't know exactly how Luke knew that or how even Mary knew that, but that's what it says. And we do know that John's entire ministry, as Josephus said, was to prepare the way uh, for the Messiah. That, uh, as Josephus said, he was commanding the Jews to exercise virtue and piety by being baptized. And so he went to the Jordan River out in the wilderness, and he was creating a new Israel... Uh, that would be ready for her Messiah to come. So he was the forerunner of the Messiah. But now in this passage, it's kind of astonishing, but in this passage, he is actually doubting that Jesus is the Messiah. He's in a prison. He's in King Herod's prison. He got there because he defied King Herod and his adultery. And he is awaiting his execution, and he's doubting He's doubting that Jesus really is the Messiah. So I want to look at that doubt, because like Austin was saying, that's a very important part of a person's faith or unbelief. It's just an important part of our world today that we live in. It's definitely an age of doubt, and I want to talk, look at how Jesus talks about that doubt. Namely, first he gently uh, criticizes John through the messengers. He's obviously not with John. But then he turns to the crowd, and he says, I want to tell you something that 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 guy is the greatest ever to live. He's the greatest prophet. He's just the greatest person at all. Um, as my children would probably say, he's raw. I don't know exactly what that word means, but uh, he's raw is what they say about anyone that's really good. So that's what, that's what my children would say about John. Um, Jesus says he is, he is the greatest of all time. And I want to look at, A, the, the doubts themselves, But then B, the fact that Jesus commends him. He doesn't condemn him, but he commends him. So those two things, the doubts and then the commendation from Christ. So here's the doubt in verse 3. Very simply, John sends these messengers to Jesus because John's in prison. He can't get out of prison. And the messengers say, John asks us to ask you, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? The one who is to come is simply a Jewish term uh, in that day for the Messiah, the coming one, the Messiah, the Mashiach. And it's really an incredible thing that John would ask that. And in, in Matthew 3, 11, John says, the one coming after me is stronger than I. And then when he sees Jesus coming, he says, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So he was completely confident. But now... There's this like 10,000 foot drop in confidence where uh, he used to be sky high on Jesus. But now, somehow, in the years in prison or months or however long he was in prison, his dark thoughts and despair have just piled up. And he, he is even wondering whether his cousin, where, the one where he left in his womb and, and he, he said, this is the, the, the Lamb of God, that is he really the Messiah? I mean, that was his entire job description, was to prepare for the Messiah. And so the question is, what changed his mind? Like, why did he begin to doubt like this? And I think that the answer is in verse 2. If you look in verse 2, it says, uh, When John heard in prison about the uh, deeds of Christ. And I think it's those deeds that bothered him so much, and it caused him to doubt the deeds of Christ. Because back in chapter three, when John is talking about the Messiah, he's talking about a person who will bring fire, who has an axe in his hand, who is ready to chop down trees. And then Jesus comes along, and he's not chopping down any trees. And he's not burning things. In fact, he's telling people to turn the other cheek. And you can imagine how infuriating that was to John, how Perplexing and disorienting it was, because here's John languishing in King Herod's prison, uh, because he's fought the power. You know, he's, he's 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 gone against the man, and then Jesus is out there, the conquering Messiah, and he is hanging out at parties. He's hanging out at Matthew's party, as it says in verse 19. The people are obviously saying about him, "Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard," because this does not look like the Messiah. And so John is in prison and Jesus is wandering around with Gentiles and with tax collectors and sinners. He's reclining at table with them. He is not attacking the establishment. He's not raising an army. He's not agitating politically. All the things John was expecting, he's not doing. And so John doubts because he was expecting the strong and victorious Jesus that would never let him down. And I hope as you are hearing this, that you're noticing that you do the same thing. That that's one reason we doubt. And maybe a really big reason that we doubt God, or particularly Jesus in this case, is that um, we think that God is going to make our lives go from one victory to another. You know, just an upward trend. Maybe a little bit up and down, but like the stock market, the expectation is just continuing to go higher and higher and higher. And then something happens, and you're completely let down. There's that 10,000-foot plummeting into despair. And if it hasn't happened to you yet, I hate to be the the bearer of bad news, but it will happen to you. Um, The longer you follow Jesus, the more will happen to you, where you're just simply disappointed in him, and he lets you down. And it's because we have the wrong expectations. It's not that he promised us something he didn't come through with, but we had the wrong expectations about what he was going to be like. Uh, when I became a Christian, I was uh, 21 years old, and a lot of it revolved around Margie, my wife, my current wife, Margie, uh, my wife, Margie. Well, she was very much part. <laughs> she was very much part of that equation. That's a joke I got from somebody else. Um, I, I prayed that Margie would, would date me. And, um, and then the, the fact that she did was honestly the, the greatest miracle I've still ever experienced, given the fact of what she was saying. And so I, I was, Jesus gave me her and self-confidence and friends and feelings of exhilaration. And a lot of you have had that experience when you believe in God, believe in Christ. You're just overwhelmed with positive feelings. Uh, things seem to be going well. But somewhere in there... Along the line, you begin to equate Jesus and then things going well. Things going the way I would like them to go, in fact. Um, and so this this equation and formula, toxic formula, develops where that's what you think faith is. But then I became a high school teacher. <laughs> a public high school teacher. And then I became a father and uh, then a pastor. And then over time, I just... Was beaten down, and um, it's kind of like marriage. When you go into a marriage, you think you have all these expectations that you're going to burn with passion for one another forever and ever, and that they're always going to make you feel great, like you're the greatest. And then somewhere along the line, they begin to point out your flaws. Hopefully, before you get married to them, they begin to point out your flaws, and. Um, because, you know, at some point, they have to. They might have tried not to for several years. But then at some point, they realize they, they have to live with you. And so they've got to begin to talk about these things that no one has ever talked to you about. Because no one has ever had to live with you forever. And so um, they begin to become your biggest critic. And it's painful. And they say things to you that no one has ever said to you. I mean, I wrote in my journal, I've never hated anyone as much in my whole life at one point. Um, because no one ever talked to me like that. And, and so you begin to doubt. You know, you, you begin to doubt. And it's the same kind of thing in terms of the relationship with God. Um, is that uh, the Bible doesn't have a single hero who was without doubt. It, there's not a single one. So Abraham, think about Abraham. I mean, he doubted so much that he slept with a concubine to produce the promised child. And he is called the, the hero of the faith. He's called the father of the faith. And in Moses, it's not entirely clear why he did it, but he apparently took this rod and he he struck a rock to try to force God's hand, to force a miracle, because God was letting him down. And it was so bad that God did not let him go into the promised land because he doubted so much. And you've got David, kind of the three great heroes of the Old Testament. David wrote this, Psalm 77, "'Will the Lord reject me forever? "'Will he never show me favor again?' Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? If you have thought that and prayed that and asked that, you're in good company. You're with David. King David said those things. And I think they all expected certain things from God, and then he failed them. He didn't follow through on what they expected. And again, I think the point here is that God disappoints all of us. It's like David in Psalm 51. He says, why have you forsaken me? Why do I go about in mourning? Why am I so oppressed? And I think that it's encouraging that even John the Baptist in the New Testament felt this way. This great prophet, the forerunner of the Messiah, that John said, are you the one to come? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really my Savior? Have you really done this thing that one time long ago I believed in? But are you really still that same person? I think it's very encouraging. Um. That that John would doubt that way. Now having said all that, I do need to say, because Jesus says this, that we have to be very careful about cherishing doubt and wallowing in doubt and nourishing doubt and enjoying the drama of profundity of our doubts about God. You got to be very careful. You know, on the one hand, Jesus completely commends John, even though he doubts. But then on the other hand, at the end of this passage, he Criticizes his this generation. He talks about this generation all throughout the gospel, the perverse, unbelieving, doubting generation. And in verse 16, he says, to what shall I compare this generation? And you kind of imagine him frustrated, like looking around, what can I compare this to? And then he says, uh, it is like these children sitting in the marketplace, calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. And I really don't know what's going on there, because I have never seen a child in a marketplace like playing a flute or, or singing a dirge. So clearly that is a reference that's kind of lost on us, but I think what's happening there is that Jesus is saying, "This generation is like these children that are impossible to please. You know, if it's John and it's morning, they hate that. If it's me and all my excitement, they hate that. Uh, it's kind of like when you say, "Let's go out to eat tonight." And the children say, no, that that takes way too long. I don't want to do that. And then you say, okay, let's eat in. And they say, that's so boring. You really can't, can't win with that. Or if you're trying to decide on a movie, and you say, let's watch The Princess Bride. And they say, that's so cheesy. So you say, then let's watch The Lord of the Rings. And they say, that's way too long and serious. You can't win. And you can't win if you're God with your people. Because when the Israelites say, why won't you deliver us out of Egypt? God answers and delivers them out of Egypt. And then they say, why did you ever deliver us out of Egypt? We want to go back to Egypt. So again, this is the perverse generation. This is the perversity of doubt. When, you, when God can't win, no matter, what, no matter what happens, you say, why won't you give me a spouse? Or why won't you give me this job? Or why won't you give me a child? And then you get the job, the, jo- the child, the spouse. And you say, why did you give me that spouse? Why did you give me that child? Why did you give me that job? Again, there's a perversity about doubts where you actually savor them. And you kind of get down in the doubts and root around in them and enjoy them and cling to them. And that's why Jesus gives that last little parable to say, It's okay that John doubted, but I don't want you to stay there. I want you to get out of that doubt. And so that turns to point two now. Point one was that we doubt. Um, Point two is that Christ commends John, even though he's doubting. So look at what he says to the, John, to, to the crowd as soon as the disciples of John go back to John. As soon as they leave, he turns on the crowd almost like he's angry. And he says, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed? Do you think my cousin's a reed shaken by the wind? Do you think my cousin is wishy-washy? Do you think he's flimsy in his faith? And then in verse 9 he says, I tell you what, he was more than a prophet. In other words, he's greater than Isaiah, he's greater than Jeremiah, he's greater than Ezekiel, he's greater than Daniel. And I love the fact that Jesus could be pleased with a doubter who has actually kind of sullied his reputation. Uh, John has just announced to this whole crowd, maybe Jesus is not the Messiah. I mean, your doubt has probably never reached that level of public fever pitch. And yet, Jesus immediately turns and he commends his cousin John. And one thing about this is you've got to be really careful about judging people in their doubt, even if it's a public doubt, even if they're saying it in front of people, maybe even if they're writing it on Facebook. Um, You've got to be really careful about condemning someone that Jesus might commend, even though they're doubting, that Jesus might think a lot more highly of someone than you do when you criticize them either in your mind or to their face or to other people about them because sometimes the people who are most angry at God are the ones who take him the most seriously and they really, really want him to be there. Um, There are people who are very passionate about certain causes and I found that it's those people who are the most likely to despair about those causes. And people who don't care about things like the environment, they're not bothered by, they don't doubt about when this or that statistic comes up about the environment. We have this friend who's an ardent environmentalist, especially about water, and we were once having lunch with him, Uh, Bailey Green is his name, and he was talking about how we have pillaged the earth, which he talks about a lot. He says that um, we have wiped out 60% of the mammals, birds, fish, and reptiles since 1970. Uh, 99% of the land in California is suffering drought. And he, you know, he can go on and on about these statistics. And uh, it's not very pleasant in a lot of ways at lunch. But uh, my brother finally asked, how do you not despair? How do you keep having faith at all when these things you're telling us are true? And uh, Bailey said, um, I'll never forget this quote. He said, to have real faith, Jonathan, you have to come right up to the edge of despair. Or it doesn't mean anything. And I think that another way of saying that is your faith doesn't really get real until you hit the darkest depths. And that's when the faith has to kick in. Because there's that gap. That's got to be filled by faith. Because it looks so bad. And uh, people call Tom Brady the goat, you know, the greatest of all time. And they call LeBron the, the goat of basketball. But imagine Jesus calling you the goat of everything. You know, you are the greatest... of all time, period. Just the greatest human being of all. That's what he says about John. In the midst of his affliction and doubt, among those born of women, I'm not sure who that rules out, uh, among those born of women, (laughs) there has arisen no one greater than John. So, I mean, again, this is a guy who just broke his heart with this doubt. Uh, He he doesn't say that in the texts. Jesus might not have reacted with a broken heart, but you you can imagine hearing those Disciples of John coming and telling them that, how painful that would be. So he says that about this person who has just broken his heart. And a lot of commentaries, I find this humorous, a lot of commentaries can't handle John doubting like this. And so they say that he doubted for the sake of the disciples. Which I think is kind of hilarious, like he winked at Jesus when he said it. Um, Although Jesus wasn't there, but you know, the, the point is that Jesus is so patient with our doubts. Those commentaries are completely missing the point that Jesus is incredibly patient and long-suffering with our doubts. That John was not just putting his doubts on like for the sake of his disciples, but that he was really in the midst of the deepest angst of his life in prison. And yet Jesus bears with us. And he responds to our doubt not with condemnation, but with commendation. Truly I tell you, this is the greatest born among women. And uh, he gently rebukes John. I like that he doesn't leave him in his doubt. He's just affirmed him like you could never affirm anyone. But then he also comes alongside him and he reminds him gently, lovingly of the promises of God. And so this is the way we heal each other's doubts. Uh, Look at verse 4. He doesn't tell John, you know, it's going to be okay. Uh, I'm sure you'll get out. I've got a great lawyer for you. Um, things are going to work out fine. God is good. He doesn't say that kind of stuff. He, he says, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind see. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news preached to them. And to us, that might not sound very reassuring or helpful, Um, But to John and Jesus, who were like, they were completely on the same wavelength. They were cousins. They both loved the Old Testament. They probably had it memorized. They certainly would have had Isaiah, the Isaiah scroll memorized. And what Jesus is saying to his cousin there is, um, what I am doing right now is everything Isaiah promised. It's all coming true. So listen to Isaiah 35, 6. And compare it with verse 4. As I read this, look at verse 4. And listen to this. In Isaiah 35, 6, the coming Messiah says, I will open the eyes of the blind, and I will unstop the ears of the deaf, and I will make the lame man leap like a deer. In other words, I am coming to redeem you. That's what the Messiah says in Isaiah 35, 6. And then Isaiah 61, 1. Listen to this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. In other words, I am am the God who is making all things new. And what Jesus was telling John, and John certainly knew, is, is John, I am still the Messiah. The very things that were promised from Isaiah about what the Messiah would do, I am doing those things. Those are happening. And I want you to know that because I want you to rest assured that the world is being redeemed, that everything's being made new, everything's being mended. Imagine you've just had a surgery and the doctor says it all went according to plan. Uh, everything looks great inside. The, the pain might increase for a while, for a few days, but trust me, in a month you'll be feeling great. And then imagine this is actually happening to a friend of mine. Uh, a week later, you feel absolutely terrible. Like it hurts where the operation happened more than ever. And you're wondering did the surgeon completely screw up? Did they hit some nerve? Or maybe they made things worse. And you wish that you had recorded what the person said. Uh, You wish you had it written down somewhere because you're doubting. You're wondering really whether that actually healed. And I think that what Jesus is saying to John is you're feeling the short-term pain right now of the surgery, of my coming, of the Messiah breaking into the world and making everything new and redeeming everything. You're feeling that, but I am actually right now healing everything. And all the promises are still true. And I am the Messiah. And of course, we know more than, than, than John did. Uh, we, we know even more about the fulfillment of Isaiah than John did. Even, even more than the contemporaries of, of Jesus right there. We, we know that, that when God came to redeem the earth, uh, he came as a groom coming for a bride. And this is actually referenced in, in the passage um, the, the, the kingdom of God is like a, a great wedding feast. And when Jesus says in verse 11 that all of you in the kingdom are greater than John, I don't know if you wondered about what in the world he was saying there, because clearly I'm not as holy as John. I'm not as dedicated as John. Neither are you. None of us are. I mean, John's the greatest. But then Jesus says, every one of you is greater than the least of you is greater than John. What can he mean by that? What he means by that is we're in a greater age. We live in a time when we know a lot more about God. We live in this age of the wedding feast, the wedding banquet. In Matthew nine twenty four, Jesus said, uh, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast and mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. And so in verse 19, when the people say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, what does that, what does that imply about Jesus? It implies that he drank a lot, that he ate a lot, that he partied a lot, that he feasted a lot. And we know that from reading Matthew. We know that from reading Luke. That um, that Jesus was like, he lived like he was in an everlasting uh, wedding banquet. He reclined at table with sinners and tax collectors. He turned water into wine. His life was like a progressive dinner from one house to the next. You know, one course to the next. A friend of mine said in the Gospels, Jesus is either having dinner with people or leaving a dinner with people or going to another dinner with people. He's just constantly going around and eating and enjoying himself And that's why the people said in verse 19, look at him a glutton and a drunkard. Uh, The reason that he was accused of that is because he was the groom coming...